Be seated. And uh, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 39. thinking about the psalm a bit this last week and and thought we would take a week just to visit a a psalm on its own, Uh, having reached that kind of breaking point or transition point in the book of Kings, a good chance to, uh, to fit in this psalm. So we'll be reading Psalm 39, and I'll be reading the whole chapter this evening. To the chief musician... To Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good, and my sorrow was stirred up. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days? That I may know how frail I am. Which is as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but a vapor. Selah. Surely every man's sorrows abound like a shadow. Surely they busy themselves in vain. They heap up riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the reproach of the foolish. I was mute. I did not open my mouth because it was you who did it. Remove the plague from me. I am consumed by the blow of your hand. When with rebukes you correct man for iniquity, you make his beauty melt away like a moth. Surely every man is a vapor. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord. And give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner as all my fathers were. Remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength before I go away and am no more. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would learn. Learn from David. Learn with David. Learn to hope in you in a life that is full of discouragement and disappointment. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This uh, psalm is a lamenting psalm. In fact, it's one of the psalms that has the the least joyful ending. His last words are even, Lord, do this before I die. He just says it nicer than that. Before I'm just dead. It's a lamenting psalm. It's unclear what the situation was. We don't need to know. And sometimes God does that as a blessing to us because our circumstances aren't the same as David's. But 
we can feel much like David felt. And so by not giving us the circumstance in David's life, sometimes God, the Holy Spirit, is, is taking us and, and showing us, hey, David felt ways that you might feel. And in this instance, we, uh, we can look at this psalm and see a man who experiences a lot of how we often feel, broken, overwhelmed, betrayed, alone, forgotten. Someone who maybe would say, I can't handle it anymore. Psalm 39 begins really with David feeling that he has had enough. Do you ever feel that way? I've, I've just had enough, God. I can't handle any more. I've had enough. That's how David begins Psalm 39. And yet in Psalm 39, he chooses to pursue wisdom in the midst of his lament. And so by the end of the psalm, although it still ends with him thinking he's dead, uh, nonetheless, David finds that God is enough. He starts feeling like he's had enough. And he ends by realizing that God is enough. And the direction for him to get there is pursuing wisdom. I think he shows us three things to pursue in terms of wisdom when we feel like we've had enough. First, David shows us the wisdom of holding the tongue. Verses 1 through 3, that's what David is talking about. He's had enough, but he's not going to let himself say it. At least not right away. He's had enough. He just, no doubt, desperately wants to voice his frustration, right? He just wants to vent. He just wants to lift his complaint up to God. I can't handle anymore. But, but he tells us, the wicked are before me. Now, the way the New King James has that, the wicked before me, you might take that as, here are these enemies coming against him. Uh, but it could be much more general than that. He is surrounded by enemies, but not necessarily enemies with swords, not necessarily people out to kill him. Uh, ESV, I, I like the way it phrases this. The ESV puts it along these lines. The wicked are, uh, he, he, says, he says here, uh, I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle as long as the wicked are in my presence. You don't always have an enemy coming against you, but the wicked are often in your presence, aren't they? You go out in your yard and you have, na- unless you live in the middle of nowhere, you have neighbors who might not love Christ. They might be wicked people. They might be really friendly, good friends but they would love to see Christ's name defamed. And so David would say, well, the wicked are in my presence. I'm going to shut my mouth. I'm not going to speak. He actually uses the language of muzzling himself. Like like when there's an unsafe dog and you make it so that the dog can't open its mouth. David says, I'm not safe. I need to muzzle myself because of what I might say, because I might sin. I I feel like I've had enough and I know myself. 
I might say something that would be a sin against God, something unworthy of the gospel, something that would bring joy to those who hate God and want to see the gospel defamed. And so David muzzles himself, keeps silence. He, he says, I even withheld myself from saying good things. Realize what he's saying is, is he knows his weakness. He has to really be careful now. When we feel like we've had enough, you're overwhelmed, you're struggling. Perhaps you've had this happen where you're, you're stopping yourself from saying a, a rude, mean, sinful thing. But then you think you're just going to joke about something. Or you intend something to come across not rude or mean. But because you're so broken, it ends up coming across as, as harsh. Or uh, all the mean things you kept yourself from saying. All the uh, cynical things. All the hateful things end up coming out in sarcasm. And it ends up being worse than if you had just said the mean thing to begin with. And that can also be true of what we speak regarding God in circumstances. Sometimes I've at times heard people who thought, who thought they were, they joked sarcastically about what they were experiencing with providence, thinking it was keeping themselves from sinning, but it actually came across far worse than if they had just admitted to all of us that they were around. Instead of trying to be funny, they just said, I'm having a really hard time. And left it at that. That's David. He, he's had enough. But the wicked, if they hear he's had enough, what is that going to say about Yahweh God? What is that going to say about the Lord who redeemed him? It's going to defame his name. So he's not even going to let himself think that he's going to say something good. No, he's going to even hold his mouth on that and just shut his mouth so that he doesn't sin against God with his mouth. That we live in a day that would not agree that David is wise here, right? We're in a culture where it's inauthentic to not voice your feelings, right? You feel your feelings. You say whatever you're thinking. You vent. You let it out. In fact, you even can get that advice uh, from uh, counselors that you just have to, you got to vent and get it out. And maybe even say all the mean things you want to say to someone because that's healthy for you. Not necessarily healthy for them, but it's healthy for you. So you should do this. You don't want to be a hypocrite by keeping your mouth shut when you're really feeling something. And so we live in a culture that would very much say David is wrong. And yet David is teaching us that in our struggles, sometimes our struggle is just between us and God. And in the same way that in a marriage or in any uh, relationship that matters, there are certain conversations that need to be had, but not with an audience, not with witnesses. Sometimes you're, uh, you're out in public and you say, we need to talk about this later. Why? Because it's just between you two. And that's the case with God as well. That's what David's saying. I kept my mouth shut because the wicked shouldn't be an audience to my struggle that I have with God right now. And so he shuts his mouth, and we need to learn that as well. Our tongue is so dangerous. You know, you know the verses, but I'm going to read them to you anyway. From James, 
James writes, See how such a great forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and creature of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless God and our God and Father. And with it we curse men who are made in the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and curses. My brethren, these things ought not to be. That's what David's saying too. And so David realizing that we can't tame our tongue in the same way that we might tame certain pets goes right where we take the pets we can't tame, which is to muzzle himself. He muzzles himself. We, we need to practice muzzling our tongues on the good days when we haven't had enough too much or we'll never, when we've had too much, be able to muzzle our tongues. We need to practice rule over our tongues every day. The second thing that David teaches us here of wisdom when you've just had enough is to understand the days. Understand your days. David kept his mouth shut while the wicked were there and then, then after in front of the wicked, keeping his mouth shut and inside he felt like he was going to burst, but he held it in. Then he seems to have come past that burning up inside, that pressure inside. The wicked are gone. It's time for the conversation with God. But by then, that time has led to a little bit more wisdom. He asks God, he asks God, teach me to measure my days, to know my end. I'm sorry. I don't have a muzzle for her, though. (laughs) So David requests that God would teach him to number his days. Here, David is reminding himself. You know, we, we say, I've had enough. It's too much. Well, why do we often feel that way? It's because we've built up an idea to ourselves that we deserve a good life now. An easy life now. We deserve a better life than this. We deserve to live to old age with no sickness, no disease, no hardship, no financial worries, and no, no one disliking us, right? Everything right in the world. My, fate, my, my dream job, my dream vacations, my dream car, my dream house, a good nest egg for the future. And, and so when we don't have those things, it feels like too much. David says, God, teach me to number my days to see the frailty and brevity of this pilgrim journey. Those three things are all included in what David says in this psalm. The frailty, the brevity, and the pilgrim journey. The frailty, uh, he says in verse 4 that he, directly that, that I need to know how frail I am. David's not frail. He's the warrior king of Israel. He was a ruddy man he killed the the giant right but he understands that in the great scheme of things 
He's nothing. Nothing compared to God. Nothing compared to the power of sin that has come into the world and brought death with it. So he is indeed quite frail. The world doesn't revolve around him. And he's asking God to remind him of that fact. Teach me how frail I am. Teach me again that uh, all my arrogance and pride uh, are no good to me when trials come my way. Teach me the frailty and the weakness that I have. And that is tied to the brevity of life, the short span of the hand. Uh, He says here, a hand breadth. And uh, we don't use that term a lot, a hand breadth anymore. But Matthew Henry informed me of something this week that I hadn't realized. The hand breadth isn't actually all five of your fingers with the thumb adding, you know, an extra however many inches. It's the four fingers when pressed tight together. That's a hand breadth. And just the, the thought of that, David says, my life is a hand breadth. I was thinking about how we measure our lives with our fingers. And there is a time when you can measure your years with your fingers on one hand. And the more fingers go up, wow, I'm getting older. Then you have to go to the second hand. And then, wow, two hands. And then you get to, you can't fit it on the hands and the toes because you're old. David says, no, I'm not. It's, it's as if my life can all fit right here on these four. As if I was nothing, as if I was a toddler again. Teach me to know the brevity of life. But the other thing he says about brevity is far more powerful. And it's this word vapor in the New King James. It appears in verse 5 and in verse 11. And each time it's followed by silah. And you may get frustrated with me because... Half the time when I'm reading a sermon text, I include the selah, selah, and the other half I don't. I should be consistent, and I wish I was consistently doing it. Uh, not, not because it was intended to be said out loud, but because we, we need the reminder of that. The selah was a, a notation in the music that said, pause. And there was supposed to be this, this pause. But it was an intentional pause. It was not a pause to catch your breath. It was a pause to think about the last thing you sang. And so in this psalm, notice the two things that David says. We got to pause and think about it. You all need to pause and think about this. When we sing it, says David, he says in verse 5, Certainly every man at his best state is but a vapor. Think about that for a second. And there would just be a pause in worship. And then again in verse 11, surely every man is a vapor. A vapor. A breath is another way to phrase that. A breath. Sometimes David uses another phrase, morning mist or morning, uh, uh, the, the, the morning fog. Uh, comes out sometimes in the Psalms. And and if you get up early enough in the morning, especially in the spring or the summer, and you look out across and maybe you can stand on a hill or something. I used to stand on the side of a mountain in Vermont at 6 a.m. 
on the, the porch of a cabin and look and there was nothing. Two feet in front of me out of the mist would be coming part of the top of a tree that was right below. And then it was just mist. Five minutes later, all these treetops start popping up. And 20 minutes later, there's no mist left. You're on the middle of the mountains. And if you've ever been up in a field or something and seen that mist, it, it feels so heavy when you're in it, isn't, doesn't it? You can't see it. It's kind of, it could be scary depending on where you are because you can't see anything. And then all of a sudden, 10 minutes later, it's just gone. And that's what David's saying. Our lives, why, why do I feel like I've had enough? Because right now it's too much. It's heavy. It's so real. This is everything. And David says, eh, it's really not. Teach me to know the, the brevity of my life. It's just gone. Another book of the Bible uses this word multiple times. Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon uses the, lot, the phrase a lot. Only there we translate it vanity. Life is a vapor. Life is vanity. It's chasing after the wind, says Solomon. What a fruitless endeavor. Go chase the wind. You won't be able to catch it. And then also understanding his days for David is a reminder to him that he's a pilgrim. Verse 12, he says, I'm a stranger with you, a sojourner as all my fathers were. And this is the idea that... Uh, in that day and age, if you were from a different country and came into a land, you didn't necessarily have the rights to own property. And so, for example, if you were uh, from any other country and you came to live among the Israelites, you might live there as a permanent a resident alien. You didn't have the right to own property in the promised land, but you could live among them. And... David is picking up on that concept and he's saying, you know, this promised land of Canaan actually isn't something I own either. I, I'm only here because I'm with you. That is God. I, I'm with you, but I'm a sojourner. I haven't gotten home yet. And, and why do we feel like we've had enough? Because everything's here and it's not going the way I want it to. David says, I need to learn to understand my days, to understand that I'm a pilgrim here, and my home is there. I haven't gotten there yet. And then, then whatever happens here, I'm not home yet. This is picked up, of course, in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, about Abraham and Sarai and their son Isaac. We read there these marvelous thoughts. Hebrews eleven thirteen, they died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. The same thing David does. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, but now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call, be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Well, those are good verses to go back to when you think, I've had enough. I can't take any more of this, God, to think, but this isn't the home. And he has prepared a city for me. And if I just 
can remember to number my days. Lord, teach me that. Teach me to remember that this isn't my home. This isn't my stuff. My future is there. Oh, then we would learn the wisdom that would get us through having enough and to find that God is enough. And then third, David David pursues wisdom and teaches us wisdom, the wisdom of recognizing what you deserve. Recognizing what you deserve. And what a great thing to remember when you feel like you deserve a better life now. An easier existence than this. And David, David, starting that way, but keeping his mouth shut, has time to reflect and realize that he deserves much worse than what he's currently experiencing. Frustration at providence earlier in the psalm has turned to hope in the Lord by verse 7. And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. And then what does he ask to be delivered from? My transgressions. My transgressions. My own sin. Now, I'm willing to bet that David wasn't saying he had enough at the beginning of the psalm, enough of himself being a sinner. I'm willing to bet the tone at the beginning of the psalm was that he'd had enough hardship and difficulty. But after he quiets his mouth, he learns the wisdom to return to this thought. God, I deserve your wrath and curse in this life and the one to come. But I'm not going to get it because I'm with you. I'm a pilgrim. I'm moving towards the eternal city. So God, I'm not going to get the worst end. What I'm getting right now is as bad as it gets. But I deserve worse because of my transgression. Lord, forgive me. I deserve worse. He realizes he has iniquity. He realizes that God uses circumstances to discipline him. That's what he's talking about in verses 8 through 11. God using circumstances to discipline him. Now, in Job, Job's friends say something that sounds somewhat similar to that, don't they? They say it a little different. It's a little bit more the tone of, what did you do? What sin is God punishing? God rebukes that in Job. And David isn't saying that here, per se. David here isn't necessarily saying, this has come upon me because of this specific transgression. He is saying, as he looks at this difficulty, the Lord disciplines those he loves. And there is a difference, I think an important difference we need to discern between looking at a hard moment in our own lives, and especially when we're looking at a hard moment in other believers' lives, and saying, what sin is being punished right now? And what David says here, which is, God, I'm a great sinner, and I need forgiveness. These hardships in life, I know that you are using to draw me into repentance and forgiveness. Do you see the distinction there? When 
tragedy hits your life, you may be able to trace it to a very specific sin. If you go out and you get drunk and you get in the car and you kill someone, then you'd better believe that the results of that are tied to a specific sin being punished. But, but for the most part, the tragedies in our lives aren't that we can tie it to this sin, but in the midst of them, we can say, Lord, I deserve far worse than this tragedy. I deserve hell. And I am a sinner. So use even this tragedy to draw me to trust you more and love you more. There's a a great distinction there. If you don't understand it, then next time you're in tragedy, you might. Because there's a great difference in the burden of your heart between saying, what did I do to make this happen? And saying, how is God drawing me closer to himself through this event? And Hebrews, again, emphasizes Not, what did you do? But look at how God is drawing us toward himself more, even by disciplining us through hard things as he loves his children. Not a little taste of hell on earth, which is how how Job's friends were looking at Job's situation. A little taste of hell on earth, but rather as the father disciplining and loving his children. Well, one, one or two asides here as we come to the end of this psalm. David here shows us that asking for better days is not wrong. And sometimes in the church, we're almost told that, especially if you're a good Puritan or something like that, that asking for better days is wrong. But David doesn't think so, does he? He says right here, he says, remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength. He's asking for better days. In the midst of trouble, first he asks for wisdom to grow. Then he asks for better days ahead. When we read here, remove your gaze from me that I may regain strength, usually in the Psalms when we hear of God's gaze, It's the ironic blessing, right? The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. If God turns that gaze away, that's a bad thing. This is an interesting moment because David actually is using it a very different way here, even though he often uses it the other way. This time it's clear from the context, the gaze is the gaze of God's discipline, the gaze of a dark providence, a difficult moment. And he's saying here the the reverse. It's not just that God blesses where he looks, but it is also the eye of God that brings those dark clouds. And so David is saying, Lord, turn your displeasure from me. Turn your face of anger away from me that I may regain my strength, that I might have better days ahead. Dear friends, it's okay to pray for better days as long as we've learned wisdom along the way. What have the trials been teaching us? Oh, that we would learn with David to hold our tongues, to understand the days, and to recognize what we really deserve. And then we can turn from crying, I've had enough, to my hope is in you. You are enough.